0: Will you pray with me as we enter into the word? Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you that you gave it to us and that you are speaking to us every day through it. Lord, I pray that as we dedicate this time to look at your word to that you will open our hearts and our minds to your spirit as you speak to us each individually where we need to hear it. Father, I pray that you will take this time, and, and use my voice to be Your voice. Fill it with Your Holy Spirit. May it have the power that comes only through You and has nothing to do with me. Father, because we want Your will in this next period of time, in all things, really, but specifically in this time as we look at Your Word. We love You, and we ask You to be with us as we meditate on You. In Your name we pray. Amen. All right, if you have your Bibles and you want to start moving towards John chapter 12, that's where we're going to be at today, uh, so that you're able to follow along. If you don't have your Bibles, there is an amazing sheet in your folder, there you go, that has um, the scripture on it as well, you can follow along there. Um, also, notes, look at that, I'm learning and improving. Really, it's just a blank sheet that you can write whatever the Spirit leads you to write. All right? All right. <laughs> so today's passage is uh it's kind of a it's a great passage, but it's a bit of a downer because Jesus is predicting his death. And there's no way to can, uh to candy coat that or sugarcoat what this topic is going to be about today. Um and it seems fitting since we're approaching the time we celebrate and honor his death, but that's going to be where we're going to look at today. But before, you need to understand where John is setting this in his gospel, okay? So the part of John that this follows is actually what we're going to talk about more specifically next week, which is the triumphal entry into Jerusalem, okay? Okay? It's the moment that we celebrate on Palm Sunday where Jesus is entering into the into the city and all of the people are lining the streets and they're calling him King and they're laying down palm branches hence Palm Sunday, palm branches and their cloaks and they're honoring him and, and all of these things. okay this is what just has happened in the, in the Gospel of John. okay At the beginning of chapter 12 is that. okay so here he is. Jesus is brought in as the king. Now that passage concludes with a verse where John says something that, or tells us something the Pharisees say. The Pharisees have always been a bit of a thorn in Jesus's side and they and he has definitely been a, a thorn in their side. They have not liked him for well at the beginning they kind of liked him but at the end They really didn't like him because he was teaching things that were going against sort of the norm that they had been living their whole life. He was teaching about the way to love God in a way that didn't fit with the way the Pharisees understood the law and all this, and they did not like it. And so here he is. He's been brought in as king. The whole city is rejoicing him. And the Pharisees say in verse 19, see, this is getting us nowhere. All of their plans and plots that they've put up, put in front of him before, it's getting them nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. Their fear is becoming reality. Jesus is no longer this Jewish phenomenon that has created this crowd that follows him around. He is, he's getting too big for his britches. And it's scaring them. Because all of a sudden, The world, the whole world, because uh, this period that we're seeing in John is right where the Passover is happening. Okay. This is the last week of his life before he's crucified and he gets brought in as king. And then this is where everybody who is anybody that is a Jew or follows the Jewish God all migrate to Jerusalem if they can to honor the Passover celebration. So here are all these people from the entire Roman the Roman Empire, are here celebrating him as king. And the Pharisees are terrified that they are going to go back and that they're going to completely lose control of the narrative. So they're afraid. And John punctuates that by the beginning of this um, passage we're going to read today. And we'll talk about that as after we finish reading. So if you'll follow along with me, this is John 12, 20 through 33 is what we're reading today. All right. Now there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the festival. They came to Philip, who was, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Philip went to tell Andrew and Andrew and Philip together told Jesus. My father will honor the one who serves me. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that was there and heard it said it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. Jesus said, This voice was for your benefit, not mine. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. The word of the Lord. All right. So John is punctuating the fear of the of the um, Pharisees by immediately moving into a story where some Greeks come to Jesus seeking him. Now, this is Greeks, not Jews who live other places in the Roman Empire. Uh, they're not diaspora uh, Jews, ones that had been dispersed um, after the exile. They're, that's not what these are. These are true G- Greeks. These would be considered Gentiles, in the Jewish um, people's eyes. They're followers of the Jewish God, that it is believed, but they have come and they are seeking Jesus. So here the Pharisees are terrified that this is going to spread past their little corner of the world to the entire world, and John says, you bet your britches it is, because some Greeks are going to come and say they want to see Jesus. And they do. They come to Philip, and why did they come to Philip? probably because Philip is the most Greek of all of the disciples. It says that he was raised in Bethsaida, which is probably the most Greek-influenced city in Galilee. Uh, It was a trading community. It had lots of outside influences. He even has a Gentile or a Greek name. Philip is not a Jewish name. Uh, And so he it it probably just was an element of comfort. They realized that he was going to come from or understand their worldview, and so they go to him and they say, we want to see Jesus. I didn't talk about this in first service, um, but I'm, you're going to get a little extra here. Uh, this idea of seeing Jesus is, it's the first step to faith uh, in John's view, okay? If we read the, um, and I might be giving a little bit away from Easter, I haven't read all of the Easter story yet that I'm going to preach on, but it, in John, the story of the resurrection is John and Peter run down to the tomb, which John so, you know, humbly notes that he's faster than Peter. He gets there and they see that the tomb is open. And it says, John approaches or the one who Jesus loved. That's what he calls himself. He stops and he sees that the tomb is open. And he goes and he looks and he sees that the tomb is empty. It then goes that Peter, like, basically barrels past him and jumps into the tomb and looks, and it says that Peter saw and believed. Okay, so there are two stages in John's understanding of faith, is to see and fully capture everything that's happening, and it begins to make that transition in your heart. And then he notes that in Peter... It is a complete transformation, and he becomes a believer in what has happened. John hadn't quite got there yet, because he was still just seeing, okay? Now take that and transpose that to the story today. Here are some Greeks who want to come and see Jesus. They're on that process of trying to understand who he is and what he's saying, and they're in the beginning stages of hopeful faith, okay? That's important. Because it's the beginning of the work outside of the Jewish world. This is the beginning of what would become the Greek church. Okay? So, Peter, or Philip goes to Andrew, and Andrew and Philip together go to Jesus, and that's where we last see these Greeks. They're kind of like Nicodemus from last week where Nicodemus was at the beginning of the story, Jesus sort of talks with Nicodemus, and then Nicodemus sort of falls away out of the story, and Jesus continues to talk about his, you know, for the Father so loved the world they gave his only begotten Son. He gives that whole monologue thing. But Nicodemus isn't there anymore. It's the same thing with these Greeks. They're there because it's important for them to, like, sort of transition into, and John, again, is, like, indicating that this is going into the world outside of the Jewish world, but it's just sort of the platform in which Jesus is given this new stage to make this these statements he's about to make. And he says, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. That term, the hour, is it's a common one in, in the Gospels, and it always refers to the moment of crucifixion. And in John, Jesus has used this phrase, this the hour, several different times, but it's up until this point, it had been, the hour has not yet come for the Son of Man to be glorified or for the Father to be fully revealed. However, it, in all the different times it's used. It is at this point that it transitions and Jesus starts talking about how the hour has come. The moment is here. This is the beginning. This is the... This is the thing that's going to change everything. Alright, so the Son of Man, that is Jesus, he is going to be glorified. The Gospel or the writer John, John the Disciple, he fully believes that the crucifixion itself is the beginning of the glorification of Jesus. A lot of the other, or several of the other gospel writers, they really focus on the glorification of Jesus um, in the resurrection. The crucifixion sort of is just a means to get to the glorification at the resurrection. But for John, it's all one thing. The crucifixion and the resurrection are all together and they are all the culmination of the glorification of Jesus Christ. So he's saying that the hour, the crucifixion, is upon us and I will be glorified. And then he like says something that seems a little odd. He says, truly I tell you, Unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. If it dies, it produces many seeds. Okay? The hour of Christ's time, his crucifixion is upon us. And then he says, Listen, we all see wheat. We don't see wheat very often, but they saw wheat all the time. And they understood what a seed of wheat was it was just a little kernel. We, most of us have gardens, or if you don't have a garden, you understand the concept of a garden, that if you plant a seed in the ground, that seed, over time, will produce a new plant, right? It's the whole cycle of of life, right, with plants. And that plant will then produce many pieces of fruit, whether it's tomatoes, or uh, if it's a tree, it might produce apples or oranges, whatever it is. And each of those pieces of fruit has many seeds in them. And those seeds could then be planted and make more plants, and that's that's how agriculture works. Okay, And Jesus says, listen, that kernel of, of wheat has to die. It has to be buried. It has to be put into the ground in order for more seeds to be produced. Jesus is referring to himself as that kernel of seed that kernel of wheat, he says, listen, I have to, this has to happen. I have to die. I have to be buried because if I don't, then there won't be more seeds. Now, have you ever thought of or tried to imagine what it would be like if Jesus hadn't died? I mean, think about it for a minute. Think if he hadn't died. I mean you could say that he's still alive i mean he is god he could live forever as a human i guess i mean anything's possible with jesus so say jesus is still alive today and he's somewhere because likelihood is he's probably not here in placerville not nothing against our city but he's just not where he's probably going to set up his central base of operations he'd be somewhere else right but that's the point is that if he were still alive then the whole movement he was having, this whole church thing would all be centralized around wherever he was at. We would have to make trips to go see him. Right? Because he, because without going to see him, we wouldn't have him with us. And so Jesus is saying, listen guys, you have to understand that for this thing to work, For this thing to become what God wills it to be, I have to put up, give up myself in order to die so that you may be planted with seeds and then you can go out into the world and you could plant new seeds and they could plant new seeds and all of a sudden the world is what it is today where the church has spread and we don't have to go to some centralized location because Jesus is here in Placerville. Right? Okay, so he says that. He says, listen, we have, this has to happen and this is going to happen. And he says, anyone who loves his, lo- their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. I think that he's talking to us and I think he's reassuring himself in this statement. Because it's right after these statements that we see a moment of struggle for Jesus, and we're going to talk about it in just a second. But it's this—he's conveying the idea that we we must be willing to hate what this is in order to inherit what could be an eternal life. Because if we love this too much, then we're not going to care that much about that, and that will cease to be a possibility. Okay. Alright. And so then he, he goes on, he talks about the servant who, if the servant follows me, then they will be where I am at. And if they are where I am at, then the Father will honor them. He will glorify them. It is in this moment where the, where Jesus is giving of himself, that is when God truly glorifies him. If Jesus would not have done that, if he would have lived in a selfish mode, God wouldn't have glorified him the way he did. So verse 27 is one version of one of my favorite parts of the Gospels. John It says, Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason I have come to this hour. Now this is John's version of a story that many of us are familiar with, um, with the Garden of Gethsemane, right? So on, on Thursday night, they had the Passover meal. Um, it was revealed that Judas is going to be the betrayer and he leaves and, and Jesus and the boys go off to the Garden of Gethsemane and he says, all right, guys, I need you to stay awake and be on watch while I go pray. And he goes and he prays and the boys fall asleep and he prays and he prays and it's in that moment that we see Jesus's humanity come into the most clear view than I think anywhere else in the gospels and it's the reason I love it so much is because I relate to this part of Jesus's life because here Jesus is and he says those infamous words that we all are aware of or maybe we're not aware of them and this is the first time you're hearing them he literally is praying to God the Father and he says father please take this cup from my lips this cup being God's will, this cup being the crucifixion that's going to be happening in less than 24 hours, this, this suffering and pain he's going to endure, he's saying, Father, please take it away. If there's any other way to accomplish your will without me having to endure this treachery, this pain, the suffering, ultimately this death, please let that be. He prays so hard that he breaks the capillaries in his forehead and begins to bleed and sweat blood. Talk about anxiety. Talk about angst. Have you ever been in so much stress that you have broken capillaries in your forehead? I haven't. But if I knew this was coming, I think I could be there. But Jesus concludes that story by saying, Father, Your will be done. Your will be done. Meaning, if, if there's no way for this to be gone, if I must endure this, I will. I will endure it. You see, Jesus at any point, could have said no. It's important to understand that. Jesus had as much free will in this as you and I have free will. So when He's going through these things, He could have said, I'm done. I don't want to do this. And this is the moment, this is the one moment we see where He is truly sweating blood over it. But instead of calling it quits, instead of saying I'm out, this is too much for me. Instead of saying I want my will, God, I want to live. I will serve you. Let me create a ministry here. Let me centralize a church where I am the where I'm ministering in your name. Let me do it in comfort. He says, "Father, your will be done." You see, Jesus lost his life. He gave up himself. His self, he selflessly Gave up what he loved, which was his life here, in order to do what God ultimately needed him to do. And then he says, we need to do it too. We have to be willing to give up this world for him. Now, when, when Jesus says you have to hate this life, he doesn't mean you have to literally hate everything about your life. What it really is, is it's you have to be willing to put your will at his feet and say, okay, God, I'm putting it down. Now I want your will, God, in my life. It's it has to it's this willingness to put put away the things that make me necessarily the most happy and say, Okay, God, I trust that you have more for me than anything I could come up with on my own. And this is a challenge for us as Christians. I think it's a challenge for us for as all people, because um we can be a bit controlly. We have a sense of control sometimes, right? We, we like the plans we have in place. We, you know, have our different, you know, our retirement plans put together. We know where we want to go and visit. We know how we're going to vacation. We know the steps we need to take in our career in order to get where we think we want to be. And then we say, God, please, please let your will be done in my life. But it would be awesome if it was conveniently fit into what my will is. Right? As I'll confess, at times that's how I pray. I want your will in my life, God. But man, it would fit so nicely here between 9 and 10.30. Just kidding. Sometimes I pray that way, and it's not how we're supposed to pray. We have to be able to just put it all down and say, okay, God, Because God promises you that he will give you more than you can imagine. And so when I say we have to put down the things we like and love, it doesn't mean that you're now going to live a life negated by all those things and not having any of that. You're going to have all that and more because God promises you that you will. But we have to be willing to set it down and walk away. We have to be willing to lose it in order to gain what he has. And that's hard for us. So then, after Jesus has this moment where he questions God, God answers. This is the only time in the book of John where the voice of God is heard. We have other places in the Gospels where we hear the voice of God, right? The audible voice speaking out. So in in the Synoptic Gospels, we have um, when Jesus is baptized. He comes out of the water, right? The sky parts, the Holy Spirit comes down, and we hear the voice of God saying, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. Right? And then there's also in the story of the transfiguration when the disciples are with Jesus on the mountaintop and Jesus is revealed in all of his true glory. And here he is standing with Moses and Elijah and they're talking and the disciples hear God's voice again confirming who Jesus is. And John doesn't have those two stories in his gospel. But he has this moment where Jesus has told them about what he's about, what he's going to do, how he must die like a kernel of wheat in order for more seeds to be produced, and that we must follow suit by living selflessly just as he is about to have to do, and then we will gain eternal life and so much more. It's after all of that that God says, I have glorified it, being God's name, and I will glorify it again. But the thing that's important is not necessarily what God said to Jesus. That's important for us, but nobody else around Jesus heard what God said to him. It says that. It says, The crowd who was there and they heard it, all they said is that it thundered. Which in that culture was a signal of God. God was in the thunder normally. Look in the Old Testament, Every and he, most of the times when God would speak to the people, they would hear thunder with it, and so it was a signal that this is God speaking to Jesus. And again, it wasn't that what he said was important, it was that he said something to Jesus. It's sort of like, Listen to what Jesus just told you, and here is my stamp of approval that what he said is right. Believe him. Right? Because Jesus confirms that by saying, this voice was not, uh, was not for my benefit, but for your benefit. But nobody heard the voice. They just heard the thunder. <laughs> so it's this idea that it wasn't necessarily that God is confirming what Jesus is saying. It's that God is confirming Jesus as who he is. He said now is the time for the judgment of this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out, and when I am lifted up from the earth, all the people will be drawn to me. We talked last week about Moses, the story of Moses lifting the snake up on the pole, right? So in in ancient uh Israel, when they were out in the wilderness wandering around and the Israelites were grumbling and complaining about how they really wished they were still in slavery instead of being freed by God to try to get to the promised land. And they're wandering around, they're complaining and grumbling and they're they're basically saying, why did you save us, God? As a punishment, God sent venomous snakes to them. And the snakes bit the people and the people who were bitten died. So they realized this is not a good thing, and that it's because they're grumbling. And so they went to Moses and said, Moses, please pray to God that he will take away the snakes. And they, he says, okay, and he prays to God, and he asks them to take away the snakes. And God's answer was not to take away the snakes, but instead he said, take this, make a copper snake, and then put it up on a post, and every time anybody who gets bitten by the snake, they can come to the post, look upon the snake, and believe, and they will be saved. It's that imagery that we were looking at last week in John chapter 3 is the same imagery that is happening again here. It's this idea that when Jesus is lifted up, it's not, again, it's not just the resurrection that glorified him, it was the, the lifting him up onto the cross, that when he is lifted up, in that moment, the world will be judged and the prince of darkness will be driven out. We talked last week about how, when we when we believe in Christ, we put our faith in Him, and he, he saves us from our sins, and we ask forgiveness of our sins. All judgment and condemnation is completely removed from us at that moment. Right? We talked about that last week. But if we choose to not believe in Jesus and not believe in in what He um, in His forgiveness, then we already are judged. We already stand in con- condemnation. So there's going to be that ultimate judgment at the very end. It's a little different than what Jesus is talking here. But he says, in this moment, in that hour, all of God's judgment will come down. It's going to all come down onto Jesus. And in that moment, that judgment will go through Jesus and go to the true root of the thing that needs to be judged, which is the prince of darkness, the prince of this world. They're terms for the devil, for Satan. Okay? In this moment of the crucifixion, all of God's judgment and wrath will come onto all of the sin and all of the things that the the enemy has used to bind us and he's gonna destroy it. Okay? Now it's really important to understand a little bit about how that works. So we have often, we often hear of or understand like sin as a debt. So imagine you have a credit card. Not hard to imagine for a lot of us. We have our credit card. We go to the store. We go, we buy big ticket items. We have this debt that keeps racking up and eventually we have to pay that debt back, right? When Jesus died on the cross, um, a lot of people think that what he did is he just erased all of the debt, which is, a fair a fair analogy of how that works. All of the sin that you have committed is gone if you ask for forgiveness. Okay? But here's the problem with that analogy is that there's one more step that needed to have occurred. Because in that analogy, you still have the credit card. You can still go back out to the stores, you can still keep racking up debt more and more and more, right? So when the judgment of God came down on, in the crucifixion, and it says that the, the, um, the prince of the world has been driven out, what actually happened is, is that the, the judgment of God came down, and the very financial system, bank system, debt system, the very structure in which the world had been, um, constructed to keep us in bondage, okay, that was eliminated. We all still have debt, and we all still need to be forgiven. But when we ask for forgiveness at this point, when God erases the debt, if we continue to live for Him, the credit card is broken, and you can't get it back. The debt is gone. There's no chance to get more debt. It's, the whole system is broken. It has all been, as John chapter 12 says, been driven out and sent away. All right? So here we are. We now stand 2,000 years from this point. When we ask God to forgive us of our sins, when we live a life that is fully committed to Him, if we are willing... To put our will on the ground in front of God and say, okay, God, this is hard for me, but I'm, I'm stepping back and I want your will in my life. If we're willing to do that daily, minutely, if you need to, if you're willing to do that, then the very system and structure that this, that Satan had used to keep us all bound up, it's obliterated and gone in your life. You can live without fear. You can live without, without any worry of being recaptured. You can live in true freedom. That is the gospel. Now, as a person of free will, you have the ability to, to potentially reject that. Just as we learned in John chapter 3, it's this constant, if you believe, then you have no condemnation. But if you choose to not believe at any point, even if at one point you were, then you bring condemnation back upon yourself. Because it is only through faith that we receive freedom. It is only through our willingness to lose this life. And when I say that again, it's just whatever it is I had planned for this life. And I'm willing to put my hands out and say, okay, God, what do you have for this life? What is your plans for my life? That we are truly free. How often do we actually let the will of God guide us? We can pray it, and we can really try our hardest but really... And I'm, I'm preaching to myself just as much as I'm preaching to anyone else. Really, it could just be to me right now. How often do we just, we just say, okay, all my plans, all my hopes and my dreams, Lord, you have so much more for me. Please take what I have and give me what you have. And give me the strength to not pick that back up again. Give me the strength to walk into the places that potentially might be uncomfortable for me. Give me the words to say to the people when I don't know the words to say. Help me love those who really don't deserve my love. And when we do that, when we do that, we plant new seeds of Christ's love into new people. Because Christ had to die so that after he rose from the dead, after he went back into heaven, the Holy Spirit could come, could fill these 12 men with their, with the true seeds of who Christ was, so that those 12 men could then go out and ultimately change the world around them. So here's the deal. Here's my challenge for you. It's a challenge for me too. If those 12 guys could change the whole world, what could our church do in Placerville? If we lived the life God truly and fully meant for us to live, we could change it. We could change it for God. We could bring love and light into the darkness. And I don't think God would make us, would have us stop in Placerville. I think we could change our county. I think we could potentially change our state or our world. However, Wherever God wants it to end, He can. But I'm on board, and I hope you'll join me. And it will be a challenge. Will you pray with me? Father, Give us your strength. Give us your strength to put our wills down at your feet. And then not pick it up again.
1: Because
0: that is so, so, it's easy to do it and to just pick them up again and to go back about our lives, but it's so hard to really just leave them. Fill us with your will. Father, fill us with your Spirit and guide and direct us. Lead us. May we be sensitive to your Spirit. Father, and for those people out there who maybe you are hearing this and they don't even know anything about what it means to put down their own will or they don't even know what it means to be a follower of you, Pray that you will guide them and direct them. Help them to ask you for forgiveness for their sins. Fill them with a supernatural faith in you. Transform their lives. Transform our lives. Transform our church. Let us be an active participant in transforming our community because it is Desperate for you. And we want to be where you are and in the movements that you're making. We trust you. We love you. Lord, be with us this week. We pray. Amen. We're going to have a song. So don't, this isn't it. Don't get up yet. We're going to have a song and then I'm going to come back and then I'll dismiss you. So hang in there. that you can daily, momently put down your will and be sensitive to the way the Spirit leads you to do His will. And I'm going to join you in that. Have a great week. We'll see you next week. Alright?